Chapter Ten of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Sigleton Mosby. Chapter Ten: First Exploits as a Partisan. Near Culpeper, November 24, 1862. My dearest Pauline, I have been on another big scout since I wrote. General Stuart sent me with nine men down to reconnoitre in the vicinity of Manassas. There was a Yankee regiment there. We came upon ten. We charged them with a yell. The Yankees ran and stampeded their whole regiment, thinking all of Stuart's cavalry were on them. Jackson is in the valley. I will join Stuart in a day or so. I stayed behind on a scout, and have just returned. Tuesday, December 2, 1862 My dearest Pauline, I am now with the 1st Regiment near Spotsylvania Courthouse, but it is uncertain how long we will be here. Jackson has arrived. I reckon you saw the account in the Richmond papers of my scout and stampede of the Yankees near Manassas. Several of my old company have been shot lately. December 9 my dearest Pauline, Enclosed I send a copy of my report to General Stuart of my scout down to Manassas when with nine men I stampeded two or three thousand Yankees. I see the Richmond papers give Colonel Rosser, 5th Virginia Cavalry, the credit of it. He had nothing to do with it, and was not in twenty-five miles of there. General Lee sent me a message expressing his gratification at my success. I believe I have already written of my trip around McClellan at Catlett Station when I saw him leave his army at the time he was superseded by Burnside. The courier by whom I sent the dispatch to General Stuart, announcing it, passed five Yankee cavalry in the road. Not dreaming there was a rebel army in their rear, they passed on by him, merely saying, Good morning. We did not go in disguise, as spies, but in Confederate uniform and with our arms. Had a slip from a northern paper, which I lost giving an account of a squad of rebel cavalry having been seen that day in their rear. Aaron thinks himself quite a hero, though he does not want to come again in such disagreeable proximity to a bombshell. I want you to send me some books to read. Send Plutarch, Macaulay's History and Essays, Encyclopedia of Anecdotes, Scott's Works, Shakespeare, Byron, Scott's Poems, Hazlitt's Life of Napoleon, if you can get me a copy of my novel, send it. Also, Memoirs of an Irish Gentleman for Fount Beatty, Corinne, and Sketchbook. The situation is now changed. McClellan and Pope have been driven from Virginia, and Burnside has met a bloody repulse at Fredericksburg. The two hostile armies are in winter quarters on the Rappahannock, and the pickets on opposite banks have declared a truce, and are swapping coffee and tobacco. Occasionally a band on the northern bank plays a favorite southern air, and soon, in response, the strain of the star-spangled banner comes from our side. The cavalry is not used for picketing, and has been sent to the rear to be more convenient to forage. To relieve the monotony, Stuart resolved to take his cavalry on a Christmas raid to Dumfries on Burnside's line of communication with Washington. A good many wagons with supplies were captured and we chased a cavalry regiment through their own camp and got all their good things. 
There is a dispatch in the history of the telegraph in the war from an operator in Fairfax which says, The 17th Pennsylvania Cavalry just passed here, furiously charging to the rear. When he returned, Stuart let me stay behind a few days with six men to operate on the enemy's outposts. He was so satisfied with our success that he let me have fifteen men to return and begin my partisan life in northern Virginia, which closed with the war. That was the origin of my battalion. On January 24, 1863, we crossed the Rappahannock and immediately began operations in a country which Joe Johnston had abandoned a year before. It looked as though I was leading a forlorn hope, but I was never discouraged. Footnote. A Confederate newspaper described the Mosby of this time as follows. His figure is slight, muscular, supple, and vigorous. His eye is keen, penetrating, and ever on the alert. Another description of his appearance during the war. Quote, he was thin, wiry, and I should say about five feet nine or ten inches in height. A slight stoop in the back was not ungraceful. His chin was carried well forward, his lips were thin, and wore a somewhat satirical smile. The eyes, under the brown felt hat, were keen, sparkling, and roved curiously from side to side. He wore a grey uniform, with no arms but two revolvers. The sabre was no favourite with him. His voice was low, and a smile was often on his lips. He rarely sat still ten minutes. Such was his appearance at that time. No one would have been struck with anything noticeable in him, except his eyes. These flashed at times, in a way which might have induced the opinion that there was something in the man, if it only had an opportunity to come out. The face of this person is tanned, beardless, youthful-looking, and pleasant. He has white regular teeth which his habitual smile reveals. His piercing eyes flash out from beneath his brown hat with its golden cord, and he reins his horse with the ease of a practised rider. A plain soldier, low and slight of stature, ready to talk, to laugh, to ride, to oblige you in any way. Such was Mosby in outward appearance. Nature had given no sign but the restless, roving, flashing eyes that there was much worth considering beneath. The commonplace exterior of the partisan concealed one of the most active, daring, restless minds of an epoch fruitful in such. His activity of mind and body, call it, if you choose, restless, eternal love of movement, was something wonderful. End quote. End footnote. In general, my purpose was to threaten and harass the enemy on the border, and in this way, compel him to withdraw troops from his front to guard the line of the Potomac and Washington. This would greatly diminish his offensive power. General Joe Hooker said before a committee of Congress that we created so much anxiety that the planks on the bridge across the Potomac were taken up every night to prevent us from carrying off the government. Recruits came to us from inside the enemy's lines, and they brought valuable information. Then I had picketed for some time in Fairfax the year before, and had acquired considerable local knowledge. The troops attached to the defense of Washington, south of the Potomac, were distributed in winter quarters through Fairfax County, and extended in an arc of a circle from the upper to the lower Potomac. The headquarters of General Stoughton, who commanded them, were at the courthouse. 
In a day or so after I arrived in Loudon, we began operations on the outposts of Fairfax. The weak points were generally selected for attack. Up to that time the pickets had passed a quiet life in their camps or dozing on the picket posts, but now they were kept under arms and awake all night by a foe who generally assailed them where he was least expected. At first they accounted for our attacks on the theory that the farmers and cripples they saw in the daytime ploughing their fields and taking care of their flocks, collected in bands at night, raided their camps, and dispersed at daybreak. But when they went around at night searching the homes for these invisible foes, they generally found the old farmers in bed, and when they returned to camp they often found that we had paid them a visit in their absence. The farmers could prove an alibi. An English officer, Colonel Percy Wyndham, a soldier of fortune who had been with Garibaldi in Italy, commanded the cavalry brigade and had charge of the outposts. He was familiar with the old rules of the schools, but he soon learned that they were out of date, and his experience in war had not taught him how to counteract the forays and surprises that kept his men in the saddle all the time. The loss of sleep is irritating to anybody, and, in his vexation at being struck by and striking at an invisible foe, he sent me a message calling me a horse-thief. I did not deny it, but retorted that all the horses I had stolen had riders, and that the riders had sabres, carbines, and pistols. There was a new regiment in his brigade that was armed only with sabres and obsolete carbines. When we attacked them with revolvers, they were really defenseless. So I sent him word through a citizen that the men of that regiment were not worth capturing, and he must give them six-shooters. We used neither carbines nor sabres, but all the men carried a pair of Colt pistols. We did not pay for them, but the U.S. government did. Fauquier County, Virginia. This is a letter to Mrs. Mosby. February 4, 1863. I have been in this neighborhood over a week, have had a gay time with the Yankees, have captured twenty-eight Yankee cavalry, twenty-nine horses. I have fifteen men with me. Fount Beatty was captured by the Yankees. His horse fell with him. There were over two hundred Yankees. The Yankees set what they thought was a sure trap to catch me a few nights ago. I went into it, and brought the whole of them off, killed and captured twelve. During the first days as a partisan, there were more comic than tragic elements in the drama of war. About that time occurred an episode that would have furnished Goldsmith with all the elements of a comedy. It was a dark night, with a deep snow on the ground, but the weather was warm and the snow soft. I received information that there was a pretty strong outpost on a certain road in Fairfax, and I was determined to capture it. Of course the fine horses were a great attraction. Several citizens had joined my command and acted as guides. Near the post lived a man named Ben Hatton, who traded in the camps and was pretty familiar with him. So around midnight we stopped at his house about a mile from the picket post, and he told us that he had been there that evening, I suppose to get coffee and sugar. Ben was impressed as a guide to conduct us to the rear of the enemy. When we reached that point I determined to dismount, leave our horses, and attack on foot. Ben had fully discharged his duty, and as he was a non-combatant I did not want to expose him to unnecessary danger. 
the blazing fire by which the Yankees were sleeping and dreaming was sufficient for us. So the horses were tied to the trees, and two of my men, Jimmy, an Irishman, and another we called Coonskin, from the Cappy War, stayed with Ben as a guard over the horses. Walking on the soft snow we made no noise and were soon upon the picket post. The surprise was complete, and they had no time to prepare for resistance. We were soon ready to start back with our prisoners and their horses, when a fire opened in our rear, where we had left the guard and horses. The best scheme seemed to be to mount the Yankee horses, dash back and recapture our own. Some of the men were left to bring the prisoners on foot. A considerable fusillade had been going on where the guard had been left, but it ceased suddenly when we got near the place. To our surprise we found the horses all standing hitched to the trees, and Ben Hatton, lying in a snowbank, shot through the thigh. But neither Coonskin nor Jimmy was there. Ben told us that the Yankees had come up and attacked them. That was all he knew, except that they had shot him. He did not know whether the Yankees had carried off Jimmy and Coonskin, or whether they had carried off the Yankees, nor could he explain why the horses were there. That was a mystery nobody could solve. We mounted, Ben was lifted on a horse behind one of the men, and we started off with all the horses and prisoners. By that time the Yankees from the camp had been attracted by the firing. They came up and opened fire at us at long range, but let us leave without venturing to come near. Ben was bleeding profusely, but it was only a flesh wound. We left him at home, curled up in bed, with his wife to nurse him. He was too near the enemy's lines for me to give him surgical assistance, and he was afraid to ask any from the camps. The wound would have betrayed him to the Yankees had they known about it, and Ben would have been hung as a spy. He was certainly innocent, for he had no desire to serve anyone but himself. His wound healed, but the only reward he got was the glory of shedding his blood for his country. As soon as it was daylight a strong body of cavalry was sent up the turnpike to catch us. They might as well have been chasing a herd of antelope. We had several hours start of them, and they returned to camp in the evening, leading a lot of broken-down horses. The pursuit had done them more harm than our attack. We brought off Coonskins and Jimmy's horses, but we couldn't invent a theory to solve the mystery. Two days afterwards Coonskin and Jimmy reappeared. They had trudged twenty-five miles through the snow, arriving within a few hours of each other, but from opposite directions, and each thought he was the only survivor. Neither knew that Ben Hatton had been shot, and each said that he had fought until they saw a body of Yankees riding down upon them. Then they ran off and left the horses in the belief that we were all prisoners. By a comparison of their statements I found out that the facts were about as follows. To keep themselves warm, the three had walked around among the trees and got separated. Coonskin saw Ben and Jimmy moving in the shadows, and took them for Yankees. He opened on them and drew blood at the first fire. Ben yelled and fell. Jimmy took it for granted that Coonskin was a Yankee and returned his fire. So they were firing at each other and dodging among the trees when they saw us coming up at a gallop. As we had left them on foot, they could not understand how we could come back on horseback. So after wounding Ben Hatton and shooting at each other, they had run away from us. A few days after this adventure, fate compelled me to act a part in a comedy which appeared to be heroic 
but for which I was really entitled to as little credit as Ben Hatton was for getting shot. From our rendezvous along the base of the Blue Ridge we continued to make night attacks on the outposts near Washington. So it was determined in Washington to put a stop to what was called our depredations, and an expedition was sent against us into Loudoun. Middleburg, a village, was supposed to be our headquarters, and it was thought that by surrounding it at night the marauders would be caught. The complaints against us did not recognize the fact that there are two parties of equal rights in a war. The error men make is in judging conduct in war by the standards of peace. I confess my theory of war was severely practical, one not acquired by reading the Waverley novels, but we observe the ethics of the code of war. Strategy is only another name for deception, and can be practiced by any commander. The enemy complained that we did not fight fair. The same complaint was made by the Austrians against Napoleon. A Major Gilmer was sent with two hundred men in expectation of extirpating my gang, as they called us. He might have done more if he had taken less whiskey along. But the weather was cold. Before daybreak he had invested the town and made his headquarters in the hotel where he had learned that I slept. I had never been in the village, except to pass through. The orders were to arrest every man that could be found, and when his searching parties reported to him, they had a lot of old men whom they had pulled out of bed. Gilmer pretended to think those were the parties that had captured his pickets and patrols, and stampeded his camps. If so, when he saw the old cripples on crutches, he ought to have been ashamed. He made free use of his bottle, and ordered a soldier to drill the old men and make them mark time just to keep warm. As he had made a night march of twenty-five miles, he concluded to carry the prisoners to his camp as prizes of war. So each greybeard had to ride double with a trooper. There were also a number of colored women whom he invited, or who asked, to go with him. They had children, but the Major was a good-natured man, so each woman was mounted behind a trooper, and the trooper took her baby in his arms. With such encumbrances, sabres and pistols would be of little use if an attack was made. When they started, the column looked more like a procession of Canterbury pilgrims than cavalry. News came to me that the enemy were at Middleburg, so with seventeen men I started that way, hoping to catch some stragglers. But when we got to the village we heard that they had gone, and we entered at a gallop. Women and children came out to greet us. The men had all been carried off as prisoners. The tears and lamentations of the scene aroused all our sentiments of chivalry, and we went in pursuit. With five or six men I rode in advance at a gallop, and directed the others to follow more slowly. I had expected that Major Gilmer might halt at Aldi, a village about five miles ahead, but when we got there a citizen told us that he had passed on through. Just as we were ascending to the top of a hill on the outskirts of the village, two cavalrymen suddenly met us. We captured them and sent them to the rear, supposing they were vedettes of Gilmer's command. Orders were sent to the men behind to hurry up. Just then I saw two cavalrymen in blue on the pike. No others were visible, so with my squad I started at a gallop to capture them. But when we got halfway down the hill we discovered a considerable body. It turned out to be a squadron of cavalry that had dismounted. Their horses were hitched to a fence, and they were feeding at a mill. 
I tried to stop, but my horse was high-mettled and ran at full speed, entirely beyond my control. But the cavalry at the mill was taken absolutely by surprise by the eruption. Their vedettes had not fired, and they were as much shocked as if we had dropped from the sky. They never waited to see how many of us there were. A panic seized them. Without stopping to bridle their horses or to fight on foot, they scattered in all directions. Some hid in the mill, others ran to Bull Run Mountain nearby. Just as we got to the mill I saw another body of cavalry ahead of me on the pike, gazing in bewildered astonishment at the sight. To save myself I jumped off my horse, and my men stopped, but fortunately the mounted party in front of me saw those I had left behind coming to my relief, so they wheeled and started full speed down the pike. We then went back to the mill and went to work. Many had hidden like rats, and as the mill was running they came near being ground up. The first man that was pulled out was covered with flour. We thought he was the miller. I still believe that the force was Major Gilmer's rear guard. All the prisoners were sent back, and with one man I rode down the pike to look for my horse. But I never got him. He chased the Yankees twenty-five miles to their camp. I have said that in this affair I got the reputation of a hero. Really, I never claimed it, but gave my horse all the credit for the stampede. Now comes the funniest part of the story. Major Gilmer had left camp about midnight. The next morning a squadron of the 1st Vermont Cavalry, which was in camp a few miles away from him, was sent up the pike on Gilmer's track. Major Gilmer did not know they were coming. When he got a mile below Aldi, he saw in front a body of cavalry coming to meet him. He thought they were my men who had cut him off from his camp. He happened to be at the point where the historic Braddock Road, along which young George Washington marched to the Monongahela, crossed the turnpike. As Major Gilmer was in search of us, it is hard to see why he was seized with a panic when he thought he saw us. He made no effort to find out whether the force in front was friend or foe, but wheeled and turned off at full speed from the pike. He seemed to think the chances were all against him. There had been a snow and a thaw, and his horses sank to their knees in mud at every jump. But the panic grew the farther he went, and he soon saw that he had to leave some of his horses sticking in the road. He concluded now that he would do like the mariner in a storm, jettison his cargo. So the old men were dropped first, next the negro women, and the troopers were told to leave the babies in the arms of their mothers. The Braddock Road had seen one such wreck and retreat a hundred years before. I had not gone far before I met the old men coming back, and they told me of their ludicrous adventure, and thanked me for their rescue. They did not know that the Vermont Cavalry was entitled to all the glory for getting up the stampede, and that they owed me nothing. In the hurry to find my horse, I had asked the prisoners no questions, and thought that we had caught a rear-guard. Among the prisoners were two captains. One was exchanged in time to be at Gettysburg, where he was killed. Major Gilmer was tried for cowardice and drunkenness, and was dismissed from the army. Colonel Johnstone, who put him under arrest when he got back, said in his report, "'The horses returned exhausted from being run at full speed for miles.' they were running from the Vermont cavalry. Among the accessions to my command was a young man named John Underwood, whom I found in the Fairfax forests. 
I was largely indebted to his skill and intelligence for whatever success I had in the beginning of my partisan life. He was killed a few months afterward, and I never found his like again, for he was equally at home threading his way through the pines or leading a charge. Why he had stayed at home and let me discover him is a mystery to me. Soon after the affair in which Ben Hatton became an involuntary hero, Underwood reported another outpost in Fairfax which was in an exposed position. I could hardly believe it. The Yankees seemed to have learned nothing by experience. It looked much as though they had been put there just to be caught, or as a snare to catch me, so I resolved to give them another lesson in the art of war. We had a suspicion that it was a trap set for us, and that there was danger. But war is not an exact science, and it is necessary to take some chances. I determined to try my luck in the daytime. They would not be expecting us, as all our attacks had been at night. Underwood led us by paths through the woods to their rear, until we arrived at a road leading from their camp to the picket. A vedette was there, but he was caught before he could fire and give the alarm. It was then plain that the surprise we had planned would be complete. A few hundred yards away the boys in blue were lounging around an old sawmill, with their horses tied to a fence. It was past twelve o'clock, there was bright sunlight, and there was snow on the ground. They were Vermont cavalry, and they had no suspicion that an enemy was near. It was just the hour for their relief to come, and as we came from the direction of their camp, they thought, when they saw us, that we were friends. When we got within a hundred yards of them, an order to charge was given. They were panic-stricken. They had no time to untie their horses and mount, and took refuge in the loft of the mill. I was afraid that if they had time to recover from their shock, they would try to hold the mill against us with their carbines until reinforcements came. There was a pile of dry timber and shavings on the floor, and the men were ordered, in a loud voice, to set the mill on fire. When we reached the head of the stairs, the Yankees surrendered. They were defenseless against the fire, and it was not their ambition to be cremated alive. Not a shot was fired. After all were mounted, we saw four finely equipped horses tied in front of a nearby house. My men at once rushed to find the riders. They found a table spread with lunch. One of the men ran upstairs where it was pitch dark. He called, but got no answer. As a pistol-shot could do no harm, he fired into the darkness. The flash of the pistol in his face caused one of the Yankees to move, and he descended through the ceiling. He had stepped on the lathing and caved it in. After he was brushed off, we saw that he was a major. The three other officers who were with him came out of their holes and surrendered. My men appropriated the lunch by right of war. Just as the Yankee relief appeared, John Underwood was sent off with the prisoners. We kept a rear-guard behind, but no attack was made on it, although one was threatened. Major Taggart, in his report of the affair, censured the officer in command, as he had a larger force than ours and made no attempt either to capture us or to recapture the prisoners. Major Wells, the major we captured, was exchanged in time to be at Gettysburg, where he was promoted to be a brigadier-general. There was more than one ludicrous affair that day. A man named Janney lived at the place, and was permitted to conduct a store, since he was inside the picket lines. He had just brought a barrel of molasses from Washington, to retail to his neighbors, 
and he was in the act of filling a jug for a customer when he heard the yell of my men as they rushed at the picket-post. As the place was occupied by the Unionists, he could not have been more surprised if a comet had struck it. Janney did not aspire to be a hero, so he ran away as fast as his heels could carry him, and, if possible, the molasses ran even faster. When he ventured to return to the store, he found the molasses spread all over the floor and not a drop in the barrel. After we were a safe distance away, the privates were paroled and allowed to go home, and the officers gave their paroles to report to Fitz Lee and Culpepper. Jake, a Hungarian, was sent with them as an escort. Now Jake had served under Kossuth and did not put much trust in paroles. They spent the night with a farmer, and when the officers went to bed, Jake volunteered to take their boots to the kitchen, to be shined. As long as he had their boots, Jake had no fear of their going off in the snow. When he got back, Jake told me with a chuckle of the trick he had played on the Yankees. War is not always grim-visaged, and incidents occur which provoke laughter in the midst of danger. In the Shenandoah Valley, a Yankee cavalry regiment went into camp one evening. One of the men rode off to a house to get something to eat, and called a colored woman to the door. He wanted to feel safe, so he asked if anybody was there. "'Nobody but Mosby,' she replied. "'Is Mosby here?' he asked. "'Yes,' she said. He dashed off to the camp and reported that Mosby was in a house nearby. Orders were given to saddle and mount quickly, and they marched to the house and surrounded it. The colonel entered and asked the woman if Mosby was there. "'Yes,' she answered. "'Where is he?' demanded the colonel. "'There he is,' she said, pointing to a negro baby in the cradle. <laughs> one night I was with one man near the enemy's camps in Fairfax. We were passing a house, when I heard a dog bark, and somebody call, "'Come here, Mosby!' So I turned, rode up to the house, and asked the man if he had called me. "'No,' he said. "'I was calling Mosby. I wanted him to stop barking.' So I have had the distinction of having had negro babies and dogs named after me. End of chapter.